We're in Mark chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 30 today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that this morning your spirit would minister. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts to receive the, the seed of the word this morning. We say again, we're clay on the potter's wheel, so shape us, mold us. And Father, it's my heart cry in this season that Jesus would be so glorified in our midst, that he alone would be would be worshipped and adored. And, and may we prayed this morning, may every man or woman uh, who attempts to touch his glory fall to the wayside, and may Jesus be gazed upon. May all of our affection and adoration be poured out at his feet. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Amen. Well, as a church, we've been thinking a lot about the Moravians. Again, if you're new with us, the Moravians, uh, they were a small community of believers in the first half of the 18th century, the 1700s, who really gave themselves to world mission. They gave themselves to prayer. In something like 13 years, they planted mission spaces on every continent except for Antarctica. Um, just 300 people, 400 people radically devoting themselves to Jesus and changing the world. We've been thinking about them a lot. Well, in our conversation about the Ravians so far, we haven't talked about a man named Christian David. And Christian David, in many ways, was the right-hand man of, of Count Zinzendorf, the, who we called the leader. And that might be a disservice. Christian David came to faith in Moravia um, and came to faith in a season where the, where the Roman church had such a grip, um, both politically and, and on the church, they really were the only, the only horse in town. And anyone who ever thought about stepping outside of the Catholic Church's, um, regulations would, they called it get a short haircut, um, or lose their head. And so when Christian David came to faith, he came to faith amongst a group of believers who were very much hidden and under the surface. And they were reading their Bible together in their language, which was illegal. Um, they were preaching to one another in their language, which was illegal. They were um, very much practicing their faith in secrecy because of the threat of persecution. And so there were martyrs who uh, were popping up left and right. Well, Christian David, with with a kind of prophetic word in their um, in their community from from a man of faith on his deathbed kind of prophesied that there would be a day coming when uh, when there would be a, a Moses who would lead them out of Moravia into a place where they could practice religious freedom. Well, Christian David became that man, and he became obsessed with the idea of finding a place where these Moravian believers could live and practice their faith without the threat of losing their heads. And he traveled all over Germany, all through these back trails, literally risking his life. Had he been caught for what he was doing, he would have and they would always say to him, you're going to get a short haircut one of these days. Um, well, Christian David met Count Zinzendorf in Germany. And Germany at this point was Lutheran, obviously. And um, he told Count Zinzendorf about the the plight of these Moravians. And Zinzendorf kind of off the cuff said, well, if you bring them here, they can live on my land. I don't care. And when when Christian David started showing up with Moravians, he snuck them out through the woods. He very much was this kind of like, underground railroad style man who would sneak them out in the middle of the night and again fear of losing their lives they started showing up in southern germany in the town that they would call herrenhut and count zinzendorf wasn't even there 
And they started building houses, and Count Zinzendorf finally came back and asked, you know, who are these people living on my land? And Christian David said, you said we could. Um, and so this community was birthed that way. It was birthed as the kind of Moses, Christian David, who was a carpenter, just very much a common man, started going to religious uh, communities who were being persecuted and sneaking them out in, in the cover of the night. Now, every community has the, has the threat of swinging the pendulum from one side to the other. So they came out from under Catholic persecution and the idea that if they ever read the Bible in their own language, they were, they were going to lose their heads. And they were thrust into um, total religious freedom under Zinzendorf's leadership and what happened was as they swung the pendulum from religious control to religious freedom, they started cat fighting like cats and dogs. Like it was total chaos. There were theological debates left and right. There were people marching down the streets of Herrenhut declaring that Count Zinzendorf, who gave them religious freedom, was the Antichrist. Um, some of you are that crazy. I don't know how you got here, but you you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And really quickly, from religious control, the, the community jumped to like 300 people, and they started uh, not just these people from Moravia, but there were Calvinists coming, people from all different pockets coming to have religious freedom. Um, and really quickly, they, they started biting each other's heads off left and right. Well, Zinzendorf decided that this community had to focus on the Lamb. The only way to rally this frenzied, confused, chaotic community was to bring them back to the teaching and the person of Jesus. And so Zinzendorf is like in his early 20s, is going home to home, asking them to forgive, asking them to obey the commands of Jesus, to go to a brother who you have a problem with, confess your sin, uh, repent. He's asking them to find unity. He's like sowing his life home to home to home, asking them to find unity. Now, What we call in history the Moravian Pentecost, today's actually Pentecost Sunday, what we call Moravian Pentecost um, is this this meeting where the Moravians came to receive communion together. They worshipped, they cried, they prayed. The context again is they all hate each other. And and Zinzendorf's been saying, you can't have Christian Christianity without Christ. You can't have Christian community without obeying the teachings of Christ. So they come, they pray, they're crying, they're repenting, they receive communion together, and they share what history calls a love feast. Now, the early church practiced love feasts. We actually see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul when he says to the Corinthian church, when you come together to share a meal, some of you are getting drunk, some of you are feasting while the poor are tired and hungry. And Paul says, that's not the way that Christians do community. In other words, Paul's saying, if you're going to have a feast, there needs to be enough food for everybody. And, and all people need to be honored. And so we find this idea of love feast or Christians coming to share bread, break bread to with one another, honor the teachings of Jesus, find unity and gaze at Jesus. Now, as the Moravians have a love feast, The Holy Spirit has poured out on them in such a radical way that that this meeting continued for hours and hours and hours and led them to the conviction that they needed 24-hour prayer and they needed to start sending missionaries around the world. It started with a banquet. Christian history is filled with banquets. We read 
Last week, if you're just jumping in with us, we read about Herod Antipas holding a banquet in which he had his now stepdaughter. This gets weird. We said last week it's a little Alabama. Okay. Um, his now stepdaughter and niece. This is even weirder. I promise you this is right. I know, I know this because I grew up very close to Alabama. I know how this works. She's his stepdaughter, his niece, and his great niece. Weird. Happens. One of my closest friends growing up, we used to pick on him and say that his, his, his grandpa and grandma were cousins, um, which was kind of true. Um, so I, I have authority to speak to this matter. She, she, I'm going to get back on the scripture here in a second. Forgive me. <laughs> my upbringing is just spilling forth. Um, she seriously, she's a stepdaughter. She's his niece and she's his great niece that I promise you that's true. She comes in to dance before a group of men who are totally drunk. Just this, this, they're, they're pigging out, they're feasting, they're drunk. They're watching a teenager dance in a perverse way. And the dinner ends up with John the Baptist losing his head. So Herod has a banquet. And I want to say to you today that the world has a banquet. There's something happening in our culture today. That's very Herod like celebrating the perversion of, of children, of teenagers living in such a way that everything's about power control and satisfying the desires of your flesh. There is a Herodian banquet taking place in our culture today. And what we find in, in contrast today when we go to the scriptures is we're going to find the banquet of Jesus. And in the banquet of Jesus, there's a simple meal. It's not extravagant. It's just bread and fish, but it's miraculous. There's peace. There's order. And in the banquet of Jesus, we're offered real satisfaction. And what I want to show you today is that you have a choice to make with your life. And it's whether you're going to participate in Herod's banquet and the perversion of the world and this, the, the pleasures of the flesh, or whether you'll sit at the feet of Jesus, receive his teaching, eat his bread, and be satisfied by, by what the world calls simple, but the scripture calls supernatural. And this banquet of Jesus that we'll read of today is obviously eschatological in nature, meaning that it's a prophetic picture of a coming day when Jesus will return and set all things right. There is a coming day when the iniquities of the world will be cast off, where the perversion of the world will be sent to hell, and where Jesus will establish perfect order and perfect peace, perfect healing. And you and I who trust Jesus, who allow Jesus to be the center of our banquet, those will have Perfect satisfaction and pleasure. But but maybe the thrust of what we're going to say today is that Jesus has to be the center of the banquet. Now let's read the text and and um and I'm gonna do my best to not bore you. Or go down the roads of twisted genealogical trees. Mark six, starting in verse thirty. The apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 
And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Haley, open this for me. God bless you. Peace be upon you. Thank you. You're the best wife I've ever had. The apostles returned to Capernaum. Now, remember that the beginning of our Mark and sandwich, we talked about that last week, that Jesus sent the disciples out. He told us about Herod's banquet, and then he tells us about them coming back. At the beginning of our Mark and sandwich, we said that disciples have been released for the first time to do ministry on their own. They're not having direct oversight by Jesus. They're not following Jesus around. They are sent two by two to the surrounding regions to preach the gospel. And they come back. The scripture tells us today that they returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. In other words, they came back excited. They, we know from the scripture that they had cast out demons. We know from the scripture that they had healed the sick and we're told that they had preached repentance and they're excited about the fruit that they've seen. If you can imagine the disciples for the first time preaching a sermon, healing the sick, and maybe there's a town drunkard and everyone knows he's cheating on his wife and he comes and repents and the disciples are thrilled at the repentance of this man. And so when they finally return to Capernaum, the kind of home base of the New Testament, they want to tell Jesus all that they've done. And this is kind of beautiful. It's like the idea of children coming to tell their parents, you know, all the incredible things that they've done, such as color on the carpet and the walls. And they were reliving the moment. But so many people were coming and going from Capernaum, from the home base, that Jesus says to the disciples, we're going we're gonna to go on a retreat. Now, this is actually really interesting, and we need to ponder this, because Jesus is saying to the disciples, you've just poured blood, sweat, and tears into gospel ministry. And Jesus is saying, I'm excited, and I'm thankful, but now we need to pull away because you need a, you need a season to recover. So we find even in the New Testament the idea that the Christian life is a life of work, that you should labor in the gospel, and then it's also a life of retreating with Jesus. It's perfectly healthy to, to give yourself to ministry and then to schedule. I, 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 I'm lying to you right now. Seth schedules for me. Seth schedules for me um, like a weekend, a couple weekends a year to get away and just to pray and just to be alone and to sleep in. Okay, that's allowed, scripturally speaking. So, so Jesus says to the disciples, you worked hard. Let's go rest. You guys need to rest. And the scripture actually says that there were so many people and so much busyness that the disciples haven't even eaten food. And Jesus is saying, this is sinful. It's You need to eat, okay? Jesus is concerned with me having snacks. Hallelujah. I'm teasing, but Jesus is saying, I'm concerned for your physical bodies. Like we need to care for your physical bodies. So they get in a boat and they begin to travel to what the scripture calls a desolate place or a wilderness place. Again, we're seeing the heart of Jesus to care for the whole, the whole person as we give ourselves to the gospel. But as they got into the boat and they began to retreat to the desolate place, 
they see crowds coming from every city. Um, I don't know about you, but if you're getting ready for a retreat, the last thing you want is to have a bucket list of emails and text messages hitting. But that's essentially what's happening right now. They're, the disciples are getting ready to go rest, and they're watching people run after them. Now, there, are, there is such a thing as healthy boundaries, no doubt about that. Um, but Jesus here shows us that there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time for healthy boundaries, and then there's a time for selfless compassion. And Jesus is teaching the disciples that sometimes, even when you're at the bottom of the barrel, um, God gives you the strength to keep giving. And so Jesus looks out on the crowds as they get off the boats, and he says that they are sheep without a shepherd, and he wells up with compassion. Now that line, sheep without a shepherd, is filled with prophetic imagery. Zechariah, for instance, says in chapter 10, I can show you this in the prophets over and over. Zechariah says in chapter 10, the household gods, they utter nonsense. The, the diviners, they see lies. They tell dreams. They give false, empty consolation. Therefore, people wander like sheep and they are afflicted for the lack of a shepherd. What does Zechariah just say? That in Israel, as he prophesies, there are lots of false prophets. There are lots of kind of witch doctor, paganish things happening, but they see false visions. They utter lies and it creates in the community chaos, confusion, and a sense of purposelessness. And over and over in the scriptures, we see God looking on Israel and saying, you're sheep without a shepherd. And the the idea here, and this is just true, is that there's no other animal that needs a shepherd like sheep. They're so desperately dependent on a man to lead them to water, to lead them to grass, to lead them to, to safety. And the Bible says over and over, you are that way. We are desperately dependent upon a shepherd, a good shepherd. You need in your soul, you need a good shepherd. Without a good shepherd for your soul, you will wander in chaos and in confusion and you will live purposelessness and you'll be um, kind of prone to the elements and the wolves and the lions. Without a good shepherd, your life will be continually under attack. So Jesus, again, they're tired. He's worried that the disciples need rest. But what he sees running at him is confused, chaotic, hungry, desperate, meaningless lives chasing him. And Jesus wells up with compassion. And he says to the disciples, kind of, we're going to push a little while longer, boys. Notice what Jesus does. The scripture says Jesus taught them many things. The solution to shepherdlessness the solution to chaos, the solution to a purposeless life, the solution to confusion is the teaching of the shepherd. Y'all, please hear me. Please hear me. The church needs the teaching of the shepherd. What, what modern Christianity wants is entertainment, pleasure, humor, quickness. But what your soul needs is the teaching of the shepherd. You need the word of God read to you and applied to your life weekly. Why? Because you're she- we, we are sheep. We need the instruction of our shepherd. And, and I'm, and you guys are so good to me. You're so great to me. So don't hear me, um, condemning at all. But, but statistically speaking, 90% of you in 10 years are all going to move away. Okay. It just happens around here. Um, we, we need to 
not demand of our shepherds, of our under shepherds, our elders and our, our under shepherds, our pastors. We need to not demand entertainment. We need to not demand the greatest theatrics. We need to not demand the greatest oratory skills. What we need to demand is exposition of the word of God. And, and what you and I need is to lean in, guys, even when it feels boring, lean your butt in and drink and feast on the teaching of Jesus. What they needed in this moment was, was, was not theatrics. What they needed in this moment was, was not someone to jump up and down and give them all chill bumps with the greatest music. What they needed was Jesus to teach them. Jesus to teach them. Now, we could begin to ask the question, like, what, what do we know about the teaching ministry of Jesus? What could Jesus have taught? And if we just look at the longest sermon of Jesus' life, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, given in Matthew 5 through 7, it's a lot about family and forgiveness and marriage. It's about anger and being poor in spirit. I think it's very likely that what Jesus is teaching them from the Scripture, what Jesus is teaching them is practice, structure, order, the, the biblical command for how the, the saints live, I think he's teaching them to order their lives according to God's law and instruction. And again, I don't, I don't think he's teaching them about angelic mysteries. And we want to go to conference after conference and hear from the, the latest prophet about his great mystery. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's telling them, order your lives according to God's commands. Husbands, forgive and lead your wives well. Wives, be diligent to, to train your kids up in the, in the ways of the Lord. I think he's giving them plain instruction. We need gospel teaching, and we need to learn to cherish it. When the church is confused, malnourished, weak, what the church needs is gospel teaching. Other things may seem more exciting. Other things may be more entertaining. I don't know what's more entertaining than me, but. but you will not be sustained. Now, if I could just do the classic pastor whip here, and you guys showed up to church today, so this, you know, congratulations. Um, culturally speaking, the church today is less committed to attending the gathering of the saints than it's ever been in our nation. We, even in our statistics, we've lowered the standard for what we call church attendance. So uh, historically, like in Pew Research, um, attending church would be like you miss church two or three times a year. Today, we call regular church attendance two Sundays out of the month. And I'm just saying that historically speaking, that's wild. Um, you need the teaching of the gospel more than you need that NFL game. Like you need the teaching of the God, your kids, your children need the teaching of the scripture more than they need the latest dance recital. And, and I'm not throwing stones. I'm not saying you need to be rigid and religious. I'm just saying in your priority list, make church a priority where the scripture is read to you and preached to you. And my kids said to me this week, we were in the car and my daughter said, dad, if you weren't a pastor, we wouldn't have to go to church like all Sunday morning. Like we've, we've been here all day. If you weren't the pastor. And um, I said, uh, mama, Haley's parents were not, were not pastors, but she was there longer than y'all. And, and, and like, I don't care if I'm the pastor or not. Like, we're going to be in church. You are going to be taught the word. Get off that pedestal. It grows late. 
And if you can imagine the disciples, they're still hungry. Okay, they, they're looking at Jesus like, you, you said, you said we were going to have snacks. And there aren't any. And so they say to Jesus, hey, we are in the wilderness and, and we're starving and they're hungry. Please send them away into the towns to buy some food before it gets too late. And Jesus says, you feed them. And now they're going, what we know from the text here is they've, they've barely got enough food on them to like have a little makeshift meal. They have five loaves of bread. We think of five like wonder loaves and you're like, oh, we can make a few sandwiches. Um, historically speaking, it's like a little round loaf. Okay. So they got five of those and they've got two fish. Like we got finger food for tonight, Jesus, and we're starving. There's barely enough for us. And Jesus says, you feed them. Then he says, bring me what you have. Five loaves, two fish. And and notice, we run past this, but notice. What the scripture says is that Jesus begins to order the crowd. And, And I like to imagine Jesus here a little bit type A. Like he's standing up, instructing them. And the Greek reads really interestingly. Because the way that the scripture reads is that he he laid them out. This is literally the image it's trying to give you. He laid them out in groups, but they were perfectly ordered like a, like a garden that's been planted with, with really in, uh, great intentionality. Like they're in nice, neat rows is what the scripture communicates. So he's got 5,000 men. And you know, historically speaking, they counted the men. They didn't count the women and children. So it's very likely that there were 15,000. And, and rather than just saying, let's fight for it which is basically what happens at our house. Jesus starts to order them. So they've listened to him teach. And now he's saying, all right, I want you a nice, neat row, structure up. He's saying to the, you know, at least two of my kids don't listen to anything. He's saying, hey, 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 get in your row. And, and there's just this image of the confused, chaotic masses. You guys know the danger of riots, of crowds. You know how many people are killed every year when people get frenzied? Like there's there's the idea of a frenzied mass that's hungry, and then there's Jesus bringing complete and total order and structure to confusion. He takes the bread and the fish, five loaves, two fish. He breaks it, looks to heaven, and blesses it. And then he starts to pass the food around. Now, there is some prophetic fulfillment here in that Elijah had a moment, Elisha had a moment like this, in 2 Kings chapter 4, a man came bringing the man of God, this is speaking of Elisha, bread of the first fruits. They brought him 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a 100 men? So Elisha has 20 loaves of bread and says, how can I set 20 loaves of bread before a 100 men? And so he repeated, give it to them so they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, they ate and they had some left according to the word of the Lord. 20 loaves of bread, Elisha feeds 100 men, and it's a great miracle. That, that 100 men have sustenance off the first fruits, just a little bread. One of the kind of primary, not primary, but one of the beautiful uh, miracles of Elisha's life. Now what Jesus is doing here today is proclaiming that there's a prophet much greater than Elisha on the scene. Because he does not have 20 loaves of bread, he's got five. And he doesn't have 100 people, he's got at least 5,000. could be as many as 15,000. 
when he takes the bread and fish and he breaks it and he looks to heaven, there is so much eschatological or end-time prophecy um, being foreshadowed here. We were, Haley and I were younger, and there was a group in the church that we were a part of, the school we were a part of going to Israel, and we couldn't afford to go to Israel. And, but people just pitched in to help us go. Um, praise God from whom all blessings flow, because we were what you call broke. Um, but we were able to go, and it was such a dream of mine. But we had this moment where, like, some of our best friends were with us, and we were at a site where some believe Jesus might have given the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot, a lot of it's just guessing. Um, but we're at a site near where he was, big hill. And um, what the scripture communicates here in this text, it, it said that they sat down on the green grass. Okay, they're on rolling hills, green grass. It feels like spring. It feels, it feels right. There are moments in your life that just feel right. I wish I had a few more of them. Um, there are moments where like all things are right. They've got order. They're sitting in, in a sunny day, green grass on rolling hills. And as I was looking out over the spot where they, where they claim maybe Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount here, all I could think about was that what the Bible teaches is not that we will die, float away and live in the clouds and we'll get angel wings and we'll float around with harps for the rest of eternity. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus those of us who pass before the return of Jesus, we will go to heaven, what we call heaven now. And when we get there, you know what we're going to do? We're going to wait for Jesus to return. That those believers sitting today in heaven, existing in heaven, they are, they are just like us waiting for the return of Christ. They are bodiless, but at the resurrection, the last day when Jesus returns, they will have bodies and we will live, imagine this, on earth, a renovated earth. We will live in the Garden of Eden, spread over the, the entire planet, and heaven and earth will collide again, and Jesus will be in our midst. And the scripture says that we won't need a son because Jesus' own glory will fill the earth. And so the biblical teaching, again, is not that we, we get angel wings. The biblical teaching is that we get resurrected bodies at a renewed planet. And so as I'm sitting with like my closest friends and my, my wife, who's never annoying and is just wonderful and happens to be in church this morning, um, um, all I can think about is that there's a day coming. This is scriptural teaching. There's a day coming when we will live in perfect community and all things will be right. There will be order. There will be no such thing as child prostitution. There will be no such thing as uh, manipulation or drug addiction or perversion or, or theft or um, oppression. There will be no such thing. Jesus will cast off every person of iniquity. And we will live in total community. And when we are hungry, Jesus will just beat us. And there will be, if my wife is anything, it's hangry. Um, there will be no hangry on this day. And I think that you can make a good case from the scripture that we will sit and listen to Jesus teach. We will sit and hear the Lamb of God exposit for us his own heart have greater insight concerning God's plans and purposes. And we tend to think that when we make it to that day, we'll know everything. You will not. You will learn for all of eternity of the vastness, the goodness, the beauty of Christ Jesus. And there will be days and endless days that are just right. Green grass, sun, and when there's not enough food, Jesus will just break it. 
and we will eat. Now, notice from the text that the meal that Jesus provides is not extravagant. Herod's banquet likely is just rows and rows of food and plenty of wine because everyone's drunk at Herod's banquet. And it's all about the satisfaction of the flesh. And I think there'll be days like that in heaven. Don't hear me saying that we'll only have mere rations in heaven. Um, But the emphasis in Jesus's moment here is simplicity and satisfaction and contentment. You know, one of the greatest sins of the Western church is we know nothing about contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We want gain, gain. Give us more money, more property, better vehicles. The scripture says you want gain, learn to be content and godly. There, there will be a contentment on that day like you've never known. The satisfaction. You will feel no need for more, no lust, no covetousness. You will eat bread from Jesus' hands and just know it is enough. Now, the disciples only had enough for snacks, finger foods. But when this is done, the scripture says there were 12 baskets left over. I don't know. I'm just connecting dots here. I imagine they were for the disciples. And so they came hungry and tired and looking at Jesus going, you said snacks. And you gave more teaching, enough teaching. And and they push a little longer and they serve a little longer and when they get up to leave, each of them has a basket full. And what we kind of glean from this is with Jesus, there's just no lack. It feels like lack. I'm not saying that with Jesus, you'll never feel lack. I'm just saying that when it's all said and done, and when you break through the spiritual warfare, and you break through all the chaos, you always end up with a basket full. And many people might even look at your basket and go, that's not Herod's banquet. But to us, we know where it came from. I don't need Herod's banquet. When I have the simple provision of Jesus, I don't need it. Now, as I kind of wrap up, and Zach, if you want to come for me. The text is trying to show us that there is a Herodian banquet that the world offers that seems extravagant. It seems like more. Um, But all it provides is, you know, you. You eat and you're hungry. You eat and you're hungry. You eat and you're hungry. And and you have more and you want more. You get more money and you spend more money. How many of us know that? You get paid more and you immediately start spending it. There's there's this there's this in, 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 impossibly satisfiable stinking desire in us. But Jesus says, Come to me and drink what I have to offer, you'll never thirst again. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that you're going to overflow with like a a perfect, abundant, emotional state for the rest of your life. He just means that when you come to him, come into relationship with him and receive the Holy Spirit, it's enough. I don't have to live wanting more, wanting more, wanting more. I don't have to live craving the fulfillment of my flesh. Again, the sexual perversion here is so blatant. There is a place in God where I am content and satisfied just to receive what Jesus offers. Maybe one of the greatest sins of the church is we haven't learned that. We are as covetous, we're as lust-driven, 
even in the context, gosh, can I yak for a second? Even in the context of church life, pastors like me, we pat each other on the back concerning how big their churches are. Like how much money do you have in the bank? And, and it throws pastors and ministry leaders into this frenzy of like, I've got to have more, more, more. Nothing's enough. And, and nothing is enough because you were made to be satisfied by a single person. The center of the banquet has to be the Lamb of God. The only person that could ever fulfill you. His name is Jesus. And you could live your life to try to prove how great you are, how big you are, how much money you can make, how innovative you are, how much better you are than everyone else. Or you can live your life just satisfied to know Jesus. And if I could just be a little crass for a second, I just say to hell with Herod's banquet. Like, I'm not living that way. I want to wake up in the morning and love Jesus. I want to lay down at night and love Jesus. I want to love Jesus more when I'm 70 than I love Jesus today. I, want, I don't want a weaning love. I want a growing love for Jesus. I want to be infatuated, obsessed with Jesus. I want to eat from his hands every day. And I want to be satisfied with this man. And if, if we don't return to that banquet, if we don't show up to that banquet where we hear the teaching of Jesus, we find unity, we surround ourselves and just gaze at Jesus, eat from Jesus. If the banquet's not about Jesus, this isn't church. This is just another water club. And I, I'm just saying that we need to make sure that Jesus is the center of the banquet, the center of your life. And you need to learn to be satisfied there. Why don't you stand to your feet? If you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit at all, if you felt the Holy Spirit poking at you, maybe there are some areas in your life that still feel like Herod's banquet. You're still living for money. You're living your life hoping for that raise and you feel like God's just poking at it. I'm gonna invite you to the altars today to get on your knees and to make Jesus the center of your life, the all in all, the, the, the fulfillment of all your desires. I wanna ask you to come to the altar and say, Jesus, you're enough, you're all I want, and I will give the rest of my life to knowing you and serving you. To say with Paul, everything else happens to be rubbish. Everything else happens to be worthless. There's an offer to live totally devoted to Jesus. I've got nothing else. I've got no other way to live. So I want to invite you to come. If that's you this morning, you just want to make him the center. I want you to come right now. Altar team, you guys just get ready to minister as you see fit.